I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, nerds, and welcome to episode 411 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. Almost uh, subtracted 100 episodes from our number there. Uh, just Adam. Today on this lovely Monday, I am recording this on Sunday night in the freezing cold of Cleveland. Uh, winter finally arrived and arrived in a big way. So hope wherever you're at, it is uh, a little bit warmer than it is here. And if it's not, I hope you're being safe. Really excited to talk about today's episode, which is an interview I did with Scott Simon, who is a journalist and the legendary host of Weekend Edition Sunday. Sorry, Weekend Edition Saturday recording this on a Sunday. Uh, he has written a number of books, but the one that we're talking about now is his new book that's out this week called Sunnyside Plaza. Uh, I talked a little bit about it at the beginning of this month, but it is a beautiful story uh, about a number of people that are involved in a home that takes care of people who have mental disabilities. Just There's a mystery involved, and the whole thing is told through the eyes of one of the people that lives in this particular facility and uh, Scott has experience working in a facility similar to this so that's where the idea came from and it was just a lot of fun. Uh, We joked a little bit about the fact that his beloved Chicago Cubs beat my Cleveland Indians for a World Series a few years back which indeed he wrote a book about that as well but uh, he's just one of the most well-known and respected journalists uh, of our time so this was a huge honor. It was amazing that he took a, a few minutes to chat with us. He's a very busy man, as you might imagine, so this was great. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. There you will find links to our social postings, which is on Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds. You can always uh, tag us in those, and if you're doing our Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge, you'll find a link to that on all of our various social media as well as our website. Uh, use the hashtag PBNread2020 and uh, we'll share all of your posts there. If you need any help with your Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge or just any reading recommendations or you just want to shoot us a quick email, you can do any of those things at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And last but not least, I always love asking every once in a while, if you haven't done so already, if you wouldn't mind giving us a five-star rating wherever you are listening to the podcast. I know it's tiresome that all of the podcast hosts that you listen to probably ask, but it really does help people find us a little bit more easily. So it takes about two seconds. We really, really appreciate it. In fact, it would take you less time than it takes you than it takes me to describe what we're asking you to do. So Okay, that's all the housekeeping. I'm not going to keep you guys any longer. I'm so excited. This is a massive week. You're going to really love both this episode and the one on Thursday, but we'll get to that in a few days. So first things first, I hope you enjoyed this fantastic conversation with the legendary Scott Simon on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. (laughs) 
everybody, it's Adam again, and it is my absolute honor to say that today's guest is none other than Scott Simon, the host of Weekend Edition Saturday and Up First from NPR. Scott is, simply put, one of the best and most highly decorated journalists and writers of our time. Scott has won every major award in broadcasting, reported from quite literally all around the world, and contributed articles for countless high-profile newspapers and websites. He's written phenomenal books about the adoption of his daughters, the lessons his mother taught him, and even a book of reflections about when his beloved Chicago Cubs beat my beloved Cleveland Indians for the World Series. He's on the phone today to discuss his new book, a beautiful middle-grade story titled Sunnyside Plaza, and it's an absolute must-read. Scott, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Adam. And I'm 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 sorry about the tribe. I like them too, you know. I I, I will tell you. So you are the uh, second NPR baseball fanatic that I've gotten to interview this year. I got to sit down with Linda Holmes for a, a while uh, back in June, and she and I talked about baseball. But it was a little less painful, admittedly, because she is not a Chicago Cubs fan. But if it had to be any team, I, I was happy that it was you guys that beat us. So it's okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I have scenes in Sunnyside Plaza that are set at Wrigley Field, as you know. I, I do. I was actually, I, it was almost, it was a little twinge of pain as I was reading it that I, I felt that just little heart, you know, it, 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 if it wasn't so close, if it wasn't for the rain delay at the end of the game there, and there's a, there's a few moments, uh, I don't know if you remember, Jason Kipnis hit a foul ball that I, I thought was going to stay fair and, and win us the World Series. So there's just a few moments that hurt a little bit, but... I remember every moment. Are you kidding? My God, yes. I'm cloudy about some of the details of my wedding, but I remember every every moment of that game. Um, you know, actually, so right before we just thought you said I'm just curious because I can't not ask you, what was sort of, was there ever one moment, because I know that we, you know, the Indians were up 3-1, was there ever like one moment throughout Game 7 or something that you actually felt confident that it was finally going to happen? Because we had the Cavs win the year before, and up until that, like, I had never experienced winning, so I wasn't familiar with it. But was there anything, even in Game 7, where you felt like, okay, this is finally our time? No, not <laughs> until the very end. Absolutely not. And if you and if you might recall, the throw from Chris Bryant to, to Anthony Rizzo was a little bit high. Mm-hmm. And, and in my Cub fan mentality, uh, you know, I was already seeing the ball sail over Rizzo's head and into the dugout. Um, which, you know, would have given the Indians the game. So in any event, I no, I, not until it was in his glove and they were jumping up and down was I satisfied that we'd won. Uh, all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to turn the page here, and now we're going to talk about Sunnyside Plaza because I don't want to start crying and on the phone with you about this uh, oh, commiserating. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so would you mind kind of giving our listeners an introduction to Sunnyside Plaza? I always like to let the, the author kind of do that. Well, it's uh, Sunnyside Plaza is set in a home for developmentally challenged adults uh, on the north side of Chicago. It is very much inspired by a home, um, similar kind of place that I worked in many years ago. When I'm afraid, developmentally disabled was not was not what we said. Um, and I met some of the most amazing, vivid, uh, interesting, intelligent. Um, funny, outgoing, uh, um, full of life characters that you could ever meet, and they were all residents uh, of this home. Um, and I wanted to write a story set there. Now, what's happening in the home, it opens, I'm afraid, where 
the woman who runs the home or is the general manager of the home has to explain to people who are uh, the residents there who were mostly sitting there at breakfast that somebody wasn't going to be down for breakfast because they had died. And died is not a word that's immediately familiar or even people, they might know the word, but they don't really know what it means. So some of the people there, I have a character named Darnell, and I actually knew a character in Darnell in real life who said this one, said, well, you know, should we save his cookie for him when he comes back from lunch? And that sets off a train of events uh, in the story. My main character is a young woman named Sal, Sally, uh, Sally Miyaki. Sal Gal is the nickname by which just about everybody calls her. And she's 19 years old, and she's uh, developmentally challenged. And she can recognize certain words but can't really read. Uh, on the other hand, they have the television going on almost 18 hours a day in the home. So she absorbs a lot of knowledge, uh, and it varies. I mean, she, uh, she knows, for example, how bricks are made. She knows how many millions of miles Earth is from the sun, even if she doesn't really know what a mile is. Uh, and she can also sing jingles that she hears to, like, garage repair door companies and things like that. And, um, you know, she's a, she's a, a, a very bright and uh, a very good young woman and has very good friends in the home, Darnell and Mary and Pilar and David. Um, and together, when they're confronted by a crisis in the home, um, it's those people uh, who stay together and who figure out that something is going on that a lot of people coming in from the outside don't understand at all. Um, and they're able to, uh, they're able to, for lack of, in fact, I'll use this phrase, they're able to solve a mystery mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of other people aren't, uh, aren't eager to do. And along the way, uh, they meet some interesting people. There are two police officers. Uh, Lon, is, uh, that's his nickname, his full name is London Bridges, I love that. <laughs> And, uh, and Sergeant Esther Rivas, who are patrol officers, and they're sent to the home uh, when they realize routine call that someone has died. They don't think there's anything nefarious in it, uh, but there is something tragic in it. And they become fascinated by what they see at the home. It's an unfamiliar environment to them. And as Esther says in the book at one point, sometimes uh, things are put in your way in life because you're not supposed to walk past them. And, and she and Lon become very interested in the home and interested in what's going on, and uh, they become instrumental to, uh, to bringing about a, um, a change in how people are able to see themselves. Uh, they become very drawn to the people there. And I, I think of it as a book that, you know, certainly does spin a mystery uh, and solves it, but it's also a book where people find themselves. It's also a book where people appreciate and understand the value of kindness. They understand the value of reaching out to each other and being considerate to each other. It's also a book where a lot of people who live in the home who rarely go outside the home and certainly never go outside unaccompanied. They, uh, they begin to learn how to navigate more of the outside world. And on the one hand, that frightens them. On the other hand, of course, it fascinates them. And I, I hope I described that journey because they meet people along the way who don't quite know what to make of them. And some people react with, I, I think, in, in instinctive discourtesy and mistrust. But others react with, I think, instinctive courtesy and, and charm and gratitude to meet them. And I like to show that range of human emotion and, and, and like to show that the, that the courtesy and the consideration can be rewarded too. 
I'm really glad that, that you, you kind of mentioned that last part because that was something that, that struck me. You know, people will will notice when they read this book for, that it's it's a middle grade book and, and you very distinctively tell the story through Sally's eyes and, and the way that, that Sally sees the world. But I really did appreciate the fact that despite the, the fact that it's a middle grade book, you did add both the positive and the negative interactions that everyone living in this home experiences because I do really think it's important for especially middle grade, middle grade readers to see that there are some negative reactions as well. But as you mentioned, the more, the more, like really the more, there's more reactions that are positive than are negative, which I think is also extremely important. Well, it was important to me to, you know, to include that range because I think it's important of, of understanding the deep feelings that can be set off. And to be sure, some of the people saying thoughtless things don't really think of themselves as being thoughtless. They don't. They don't know how what they say can be received and can and can hurt people. Um, but what I hope is that the, when the middle grade reader, when anybody is reading the book, they will hurt for the people you know who are there. I hope that there's um, reading the novel as an act of empathy for those of us who um, uh, obviously live different lives, but we can insert ourselves into their skins and to. Uh, uh, to share some of the hurt feelings that they must have when they overhear a remark like that. As I mentioned bef- before, it, you make a very specific decision to to tell the story in the way that Sally lives her life and the way that she sees things around her. How did you go about writing in that style? I, I imagine you had to take a lot of care and compassion with the way that you were writing it out. Yeah, and you know, it... it... When I talk about an act of empathy, it you know it uh, it it was very much worth doing, um, but very much a challenge. Mm-hmm. What I had to do was uh, was try and insert myself in the mind and soul of a uh, of a character who is fictional, but not altogether fictional to me because I've known people like Sally Miyake, and to try to see the world through their eyes, try and feel the world through their heart, um, try to put myself in their shoes and their skins and to, and to react and look out at the world um, with, you know, sometimes they, they can perceive it in a different way, obviously, than a lot of other people, but trying to perceive it in the way that, that they experience it uh, was the challenge that I had. Because, you know, I, I didn't, Adam... I didn't, it was important to me that the people who live in Sunnyside Plaza were the center of the story mm-hmm. and and were ultimately responsible for solving things and for providing the lessons. I hate to say lessons, but providing the themes. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to create, for lack of a better phrase, and I think adults will understand this, I didn't want to create an adolescent savior <laughs> character who would, you know, who would come in and, and solve everything and, and make everything right and learn a lot in the process. I wanted it to be clear, and this was from my own experience, that the people who live in the home, the people who are friends to each other, the people who open their minds and hearts, they're the ones um, really who have the power to steer their own lives. They're the ones who, uh, to whom we ought to be thankful for showing us how to... Uh, uh, how to live lives that can be better and, and, and more in touch with ourselves and with others. 
um, and to look out for each other and be considerate. It was important to me that they be um, the people who live in the home and, and Sal Galp in particular be the narrative center uh, of the book. And if I had created some other character to tell her story, uh, it would have taken it away from her distinctive view of the world. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, you know, I um, I used my now 16-year-old daughter and her best friend, uh, who were then working for their high school newspaper, as my um, uh, as my first readers mm-hmm. and the people um, who could give me the best advice. And I, I will. I will tell you they gave me the best advice for any novelist, which is don't make the book as any longer than the old man in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, twenty-five thousand. Twenty, yeah, I know it's pretty, that's a rough. Uh, that's that's daunting. Yeah, twenty-five thousand words, I gather. So I came within uh, I came within three thousand words. But in any event, I you know I I tried it both ways. I didn't write two entire different books from different points of view, but mm-hmm. I I tried a treatment of about three or four chapters where uh, I did make a young adolescent 14-year-old who had some um, uh, some connection or exposure to the home, the narrative center and storyteller, and I gave it to Elise, her 16-year-old, then 15, and uh, her friend Adelaide, and they said, well, it's okay, but not as interesting as Sal Gal. Mm-hmm. They said, we really like Sal Gal. We like how she sees the world. We we want to hear from Sal Gal. And after they said that, I think I really got the, um, well, I really got the conviction to uh, to go ahead and tell the story through her voice. I'm just trying to think of what literature would be left if we were if we were doing the the old man of the sea test i feel like it'd be of mice and men and that'd be just about it i'm trying to think of anything that'd be just about it yeah I, I really ought to make a uh, <laughs> really ought to make a survey of that but in any event that's what they i i think what they meant by that is that you have to make every word count mm-hmm. and, uh, and and you know so i hope it did but it, it's still good advice i yeah. must say oh yeah um, so what made you want to write a middle grade story at, at this point in your career? You know, I, the experience that I had working in this home on the north side of Chicago, um, and like the home in the book, just a few blocks from Wrigley Field, was so, it had such a profound impact on my life. Uh, I wasn't working there because I had any aspiration to do that kind of work for a living, as some people there did. Uh, it was a good job. It was, you know, congenial with my hours. Um, after I helped the people who were on my case list get to bed, I could watch late night TV. I could do homework. I could call people on the phone. Um, but I just became swept up, and I learned so much from the people in, in that home. And for years, I've been looking for a way to tell the story. Uh, I've been looking for a way to make people like the ones I met in that home on the north side of Chicago at the center of a, of a story I could tell and of a novel that would mean something to people. And I was between projects, and I was talking about this at dinner one night, and it was our oldest daughter, Elise, then maybe 14, who said, because I had always told our daughters, you know, the stuff that you're reading now, like The Old Man in the Sea, like The Diary of our, uh, of Anne Frank, um, uh, Elise just finished reading The Great Gatsby and In Cold Blood, 
Um, uh, but before that, I mean, the, the works of Jerry Spinelli, uh, the works of, of uh, Laurie Halls Anderson. I said, those are the books that are going to stay with you for the rest of your lives. Those are the ones that really sink into you, and you will find yourself as you go on. I said, look, I, you know, for my for my living uh, on our show on NPR, I interview, uh, I routinely interview two authors a week, and and I like them all. Um, but I'm I'm two three weeks after I've had them on the air. I sometimes I'm foggy on the details. Mm-hmm. But I said the stuff you you read when you're in the middle grades. That's the kind of stuff that really stays with you, and those are lessons in life that you that are just in your bones that you you carry with you for the rest of your life. And in any event, I was talking about how I wanted to do something set in a home, much like the one I worked at in the north side of Chicago. And it was Elise, who I guess was then fourteen, who said, "You know, you should you should you should make it for young readers. You should make it for middle grade readers because you want to tell a story that stays with people." And I thought. Oh, I wonder if I could do that. And I began to try and do it, and it was difficult, but I thought, you know, this is very much worth doing. She's absolutely right. This is very much worth doing. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up that way because uh, earlier this year I had a long conversation with um, Daniel Handler, who's better known as Lemony Snicket, and created all the series of Unfortunate Events books. And yeah. we, we were taught, we had a long conversation about this exact thing where we were talking about what people perceive as classic literature and, and you exact you just said, you know, you think of the great Gatsby and you think of all you know, Shakespeare and all these things, but the books that we think about and we experience the most as human beings really are those children's books and those middle grade books because not only do we read them when they're in our formative years, but we also end up rereading them. I mean, I've read Charlotte's Web and The Outsiders probably, you know, a hundred times, whereas I've read War and Peace once and I'm never going to approach it again. And I think that's something that this book can do for people is it can stay with them when they're when they're younger and it can help give them a new view on life that they might not otherwise have. Well that that's absolutely what I that's absolutely what I hope for. Um and, and that's what made it worth doing to to try and talk to people at, I, at, I think, an age where, you know, I wish I had learned those lessons. I wound up being older, but I think it's important to, um, I hate to use the term lessons in that, you know, I don't think this is a, I, I, I hope this is a book that tells an enjoyable story. Mm-hmm. But um, I did, I, I did want to impart something of the feeling of these wonderful people. And I, I think trying to, Trying to make it for young readers is is a good way of having that sink in with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so normally, I always like to when I'm talking to authors, I, every single author we've ever interviewed in our you know 400 episodes now, I always like to ask people what they want readers to take away from their books, and, and you kind of answered that there. But to be selfish a little bit for a second, because I this is a rare opportunity to speak with you on the phone as someone who. I've listened to, I can't even number the amount of interviews I've listened to you do or or read. What is something that you, when you're interviewing people, what's, is there like one thing you always try to get out of the conversation with them? Well, I, I, you know, certainly it depends on the interview. I mean, I, uh, there, there, there's some interviews you do just for fun. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good. Well, I, I talked to a fellow last week just about holiday socks. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, you know it, it was funny that was interesting we but we expected it mostly to be funny i think when i'm talking to authors um i really want to find out what their conviction was mm -hmm. in this book why i mean you know because there's so many stories that someone can write um maybe your first novel tells the story you always wanted to tell but when you begin to do it for a living as most of the people I interview do, and certainly, you know, that's the case I'm in at this at this particular point. I think there's a reason why you choose to tell a story at a certain time, and that's what I understand. Because I think when I think when people write, uh, even when they're you know enormously profligate, um, as some of the great you know authors for young readers are, um, I think it's it's. What impels them to tell a story at a certain time is that they think that they're they are sharing something important that they want other people to understand. And of course, the only way to really understand that is to read the book. But I think uh, when I interview them, they can set up some signposts along the way that help us ferret out that message. And that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get to as much as anything. And you know, and I and I I've thought about this with with Sunnyside, and I think it gets back to that theme that. You know, we, we are here to learn from life, not just to get through or get past life. And I think particularly when, when we're young, there are certain experiences and people that are put in front of us because we're supposed to learn from them, because we're supposed to bring them into our own lives and not walk past them. Uh, and, and I think in, in Sunnyside Plaza, uh, the police officers realize this is just not another call at the home. But these these are people that they that they want to bring into their lives. I think the people living in the home realize uh, that this is just not a sad circumstance that we have to get through, which is a perfectly respectable way of seeing certain reverses in life. But they understand, no, this is something we can do something about. This is something that we that we can learn from and get better at, and 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 try and bring about an improvement for people. We can call attention to things that have to be noticed because we know things that uh, we're in a position to know that nobody else does. And I, I like to think that that's what, you know, that that's what Sunnyside Plaza can do from one page to the other when you open it. I think that's an absolutely perfect place to end. I, honestly, Scott, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. Even though you are a Chicago Cubs fan, it was an absolute oh. honor. A real honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new 
for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Thank you.